So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we're excited to be joined by Barry Edlin, who's an associate professor of sociology at McGill University and the author of Labor and the Class ID in the United States and Canada. Uh, Barry, did I pronounce your last name correctly? It's Eidlin. Eidlin, sorry. All right. No okay, thanks. Barry Eidlin. So thank you so much for being here tonight. Happy to be here, love. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we are going to talk about the life and work of the great Mike Davis, who passed away um, on October 25th at the age of 76. And before we get into his work, perhaps um, you and you wrote a, a, a beautiful piece about about Mike Davis on on Jacobin. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit first about about his life. Who who was he? So he's a very interesting character. He came from um, working class roots. He was the son of a meat cutter, um, and uh, you know grew up in Southern California, the sort of place that uh, I mean he he made his life there for most of his life and uh, was uh, uh, you know and and really shaped shaped who he was and what he wrote about. You know I think most people to the extent that they know Davis's work know him for his writings on Los Angeles and he returned to LA several times over the course of his uh over the course of his life and his books um but he um you know he got involved in student activism as a, as as a young as a as a teenager um you know uh through through uh, the Congress on Racial Equality, Students for Democratic Society, you know, so that's sort of like the 60s movements. Um, in the 1970s, he, um, along with many of his generation, made what was called the turn to industry um, and uh, got a job as a Teamster. He was uh, active in the early years of Teamsters for Democratic Union, uh, a group that that I was part of. Um, before embarking on my academic career. Um, so he had this sort of like activist um, background. Um, and then, uh, but then, you know, he 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 got deeper into writing and, and research. And so he actually spent some time um, uh, with, uh, on staff with uh, New Left Review, which is a socialist sort of academic-ish journal uh in in the in the united kingdom and so he moved there for in in the 1980s um in his his first book um was called prisoners of the american dream um based on several articles that he had written for new left review which was really about the history and prognosis of the u.s labor movement um, but he really, I mean, the thing that's really amazing about Mike Davis as a writer is just the sheer breadth of his of his oeuvre, really. <laughs> like he, like I said, his first book was about the US labor movement. He wrote all these books about Los Angeles, but then he also found time to write about, you know, global drought patterns in the 19th century, about pandemics, about um you know about the history of the car bomb um you know so 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 there's really a, a huge swath of of 
of writing that he really was able to dig into in a serious way. He wasn't just some intellectual dilettante, right? So these are these are our works that sort of um, you know. So he, so even though he himself didn't have a PhD, um, you know, he he was able to operate in you know and and command. Uh, respect, uh, at least in certain parts of the academic world. I mean, there are certain parts that probably just resented the lack of credentials. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but you know, he's assigned in graduate seminars um, all over the place. Um, at, but, but he also um, is, uh, you know, wide, was widely respected and remained widely respected in in uh, in sort of political activist circles as well. So he sort of really straddled multiple worlds. Yeah, I mean, I read many obituaries in the last couple of weeks of, of Davis. And well, first of all, what's so interesting is you have obits in The Times and The New Yorker, but also on, on more radical outlets. Yeah. Um, and that was impressive. But the common thread was, you know, the, the term that kept coming up was prophetic. And mm -hmm. that, you know, sort of Mike Davis could could see the future. So I'm wondering... You talked about the the range in his work. I'm wondering both about how he was able to to write about so many different topics, and also how he was. I remember reading the monster at our door about the avian flu, and I must have been maybe 2006 or 2007. And you know, it's it's spooky because he he's really it could have been written in 2020, the spring of 2020. So how is it that he's able to? What tools does he have that enable him to both write about so many topics, but also be so prophetic? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I, you know, as as you know from reading my own piece, I, I unfortunately never had a chance to meet him personally, so I've only known him through his through his writing. Um, and yeah, I I don't really have a good good answer for that. I mean, I think he really is the sort of like. Uh, there's this degree to which he's sort of this sui generis phenomenon, right? I mean, I think that you know that, that, that there can only be one Mike Davis who sort of has this particular background, who um, is you know really self-taught to a certain degree, so is this autodidact basically, um, you know, and um, and you know, I mean, I guess you know, being someone who is sort of I guess in his orbit. So I, I had like two degrees of separation, you know, so I, mm -hmm. I, I, I know people who um, are lifelong friends with him. And, you know, so I, I just know that, um, you know, he could just get into that, into that mode where he just would do these deep dives. Right. And so he just would like figure out like, this is what I really want to focus on. And he could just, dig into that and just there, there was something that allowed him to see those patterns um you know whether it's the la riots or the or or, or the pandemic or or what have you um you know or i mean i i, I don't i wouldn't say his, his his writings on 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 the labor movement i wouldn't call prophetic they're very insightful, but mm. they don't have. To, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. I would. I wouldn't call them. He didn't foresee uh, anything um, necessarily. Not, that's in no way to uh, detract from the quality of his insight. But um, 
but you know, so yeah, unfortunately, I'm talking in circles now, and I don't really have a good answer for for, <laughs> so for why for why he was able to uh, to be as prophetic as he was. Yeah, I was first introduced. My brother gave me uh, City of Courts, and I was, yes. I was probably twenty two or so, and that was a a life changing book. And um, yeah, I just. I, I recommend it to everybody. And, and and all my friends who, you know, I'm really into basketball. They they thought that it was a book about, you know, basketball. Um, but I always have to say, no, courts, the courts like the rock. But yes. um, I recommend it to everybody. Um, I'm, and I read your piece and you were you were introduced to Davis um in a class. And I'm wondering in college, I'm wondering what what that book was and and how it how it shaped your thinking about the world. Yeah, it actually wasn't in class. I mean, I think I, I spent a lot of time in that professor, this Chris Howell at, at Oberlin College, um, and uh, still uh, still keep in touch with him, uh, but never actually took a class with him. Um, but I, I just happened to work in the reserve room at Oberlin College, okay. and so I would keep track of what professors had <laughs> on reserve for their different courses. Oh, that's and, smart, yeah. Yeah, and it was a good way to sort of, you know, I, later on I sort of realized that I got exposed to a lot of interesting mm -hmm. stuff just from working in the reserve room, mm -hmm. um, something that doesn't really exist anymore. But um, but, uh, but yeah, so so Professor Howell had, uh, had, had Prisoners of the American Dream on reserve, and that one was a book that definitely caught my eye because um, I was in the... I was involved um, in sort of labor activism, sort of student solidarity with with various uh, labor struggles uh, on campus and beyond. Um, and that book, his first book, was about the history and uh, analysis of the of the U.S. labor movement. And so that's a book that really has has shaped my thinking on. Um, on labor and class in in the United States in particular. And I have obviously, you know, paired it with an analysis of, of the same trajectory in Canada in my own work. But that, but I think, you know, um so that's a book that has really stayed with me um for for many years and and thanks to my teaching. Um both uh, in my contemporary social movements class and my seminar that's called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, um, Davis has a real has real pride of place in both of those classes uh, because that that writing from that first book is just so insightful and so dense and so, as I say in the in the Remembrance of Davis, it's so generative. Right, it's so it 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 really provides not only uh, extremely insightful and cogent analysis of the history, but it really sort of provides this sort of framework for jumping off and digging deeper into elements that he doesn't that he just barely mm. touches on, <laughs> right? And so yeah. it provides a framework for really um, for your own work. So, 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 and, and I think, you know, my, my own work is, is, is in part a testament to that generative quality of his writing. Yeah. Maybe we could just spend uh, a couple of minutes talking about the, the central argument of that book. And then I, I'd be very interested. I, I did some research and read a bunch of your work before this mm -hmm. interview. I'd be pretty interested in you talking about 
about your work and um oh okay I, and i'm really interested in in the ways that the labor movement in in canada is different from the labor movement in the united states yeah i think so 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 the argument of that book is really about challenging uh some of the um sacred cows of american ideas about class uh i i would say and it's uh, and and the idea that that the country is sort of founded on this idea of american exceptionalism and that um you know working class movements sort of were always alien because they were fundamentally incompatible with american ideology of individualism and self-reliance and all that kind of stuff. And so what he really does a fantastic job of, of sort of synthesizing and really um, digging into is the real history behind. Uh, so, so rather than being sort of, um, I guess the, the fundamental argument is that this weak working class organization that he was confronting when he was writing in the late 1970s and, and early 80s. Um, so this is sort of the prelude to and, and early years of the Reagan era we're talking about, um, where if you look out on the scene, it's very easy to think of the U.S. labor movement as this sort of dinosaur that's sort of, um, you know, uh, out of date, uh, really not very dynamic, um, and this working class that is sort of much more conservative and not this sort of dynamic force for social change that uh, Marxists would consider it to be. Um, that that is a product of uh, what he called the sedimented layers of historical defeat, right? Which is a which is sort of very much in keeping with his overall analysis, no matter what he was looking at, because it sort of has this very sort of pessimistic um, overall analysis, but there's a possibility of gleaning hope from it because the idea there is that it's a historical process that, you know, from his perspective, and I would add my perspective, had a bad outcome, i.e. a weak working class movement. But the fact that it's a historical process that's the result of a sequence of historical battles also suggests that those battles can turn out differently and thus that the history is not inevitable and that it can take a different path. And so that's where you can draw hope from what is overall a pretty depressing uh, assessment of where things stand. And so that's sort of really, I mean, without getting into the specific, I mean, like the book sort of really digs into the history in this really rich way that's impossible to capture in a few sentences. Mm -hmm. But that's really what he's trying to get at. 
Yeah, and then maybe you could talk a bit about the work you've done on Canadian labor movements. Yeah, so I think where I really take that idea of the sort of uh, historical character of of working class organization, working class movements, and understanding that these these um, these trajectories that we see are not predetermined, but rather the outcomes of historical struggles. And that really informs how I uh, analyze the difference between the US and Canadian labor movements, right? Because the fundamental question at the heart of the book, uh, of, of my first book, uh, Labor and the Class Idea, um, is it's trying to explain the fact that if you look at unionization rates in the United States and Canada over the course of the 20th century, they're fairly similar for much of the 20th century up until the mid-1960s. And then mm. there's this great divergence. And if you look at them today, unionization rates in Canada are about three times higher roughly wow. than they are in the United States. So they're hovering just below 30% in Canada and they're just above 10% in the US. Mm -hmm. And so the book is about trying to explain why that is. And um, and again, it's taking issue with the sort of default assumption that many have that like, well, you know, Canada is just kind of more socialist than the United States and people mm -hmm. are just more collectively minded and they're just nicer and, you know, that kind of thing <laughs> versus, yeah. versus, uh, you know, the sort of pull it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, American exceptionalism and sort of individualism that sort of like made unions in the U S more conservative. And so I really sort of build on Davis's insight about the sort of the, 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 how this is not some sort of historical inevitability, but rather the product of historical battles. And in my book, I try to sort of excavate the historical battles that led to the divergence. And they really, to my, as I argue, trace back to the different ways that ruling parties in the US and Canada responded to the worker upsurge of the 1930s and 40s mm -hmm. in both that happened in both countries. This is the Great Depression and World War II, right? Uh, which affected both countries. And um, the irony of the situation is that it's actually the more pro-union response of the Roosevelt administration in the US that ultimately laid the groundwork for the US government's weakness, mm -hmm. whereas the more hostile response in Canada ultimately strengthened um, Canadian labor unions. And I want to pause here to mention that it's not that Canadian labor unions are in great shape and that Canada is some sort of social democratic paradise. It's just by comparison with the US yeah. that it's in better shape. So that 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 you know unions still have a lot of problems in our and 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 there's still lack um, could definitely use more power in the in Canada as well it's just that there is something fundamentally different when you're at 30% unionization versus 10% unionization right mm -hmm. and so basically the idea there is that because um in in the US the um the uh Roosevelt administration sort of early response to labor upsurge and sort of incorporating labor into the democratic party coalition um encouraged um, encourage labor to think of itself as a sort of interest group within that 
party coalition mm. and labor law became a sort of the protection of a certain set of rights for this group. And that all sort of encouraged this sort of particularistic group thinking and also in the legal realm led with this to this concern with balancing those fairly novel collective bargaining rights for workers with more entrenched employer property rights. So, so, so there was this effort to, for example, promote something called employer free speech rights, right? That we need to balance workers' right to organize with employers' free speech rights, which in practice laid the legal groundwork for the captive audience meetings and other oh, wow. sort of employer tactics that allow employers to engage in scorched earth campaigns to terrorize their workers into uh, preventing them from unionizing, mm. right? Whereas in Canada, uh, you have a certain amount of employer free speech, but but labor law is much more um, is it is much more viewed as a means of containing industrial conflict. Um, and so even people who might, politicians and judges who might not be fans of unions necessarily, understand the importance of having a functioning labor relations machinery. And so when it's broken, they might take efforts to reform it, um, you know, and and so there, there, there was efforts to sort of shore up the machinery as opposed to in the U.S. where you have um, sort of uh, because uh, labor law gets polarized along party lines, as you know, with the la labor being part of the Democratic Party, a special interest with the Democratic Party, um, efforts to reform labor law become portrayed not just as sort of an effort to shore up the administrative machinery, but rather as a payoff to a narrow uh -huh. special interest group. And so that sort of blocks the legislative reform while the courts um efforts to sort of balance uh workers labor rights with uh with employer property rights um when you get to the court system and anything in the court system goes up against property rights uh, property will win and so mm -hmm. um, so that has led over time to a restriction of workers collective bargaining rights um in favor of employer property rights Whereas in Canada, this concern with sort of like maintaining the industrial relations machinery has, um, you know, again, not not been some workers paradise by any stretch of the imagination, but has led to a world where there's a functioning labor machinery that actually, to some degree, protects workers' right to organize. Um, it's obviously very imperfect. We are seeing that right now, um, literally, where the Ontario government has just passed, uh, you know, a, a, a back to work legislation that's sort of forcing their school employees in Ontario to, uh, you know, preventing them from striking under penalty of massive fines and potential mm -hmm. jail time, um, even though um, the right to strike and collective bargaining is ostensibly protected in the Constitution. So in order to pass that the, in, in the law are clauses saying that, you know, the constitution doesn't doesn't apply here wow. that we are suspending the constitution to oh, implement wow. this law um right so on the one hand that's um shows you that that there are severe problems with 
um, severe attacks on workers' rights in Canada, just as there are in the U.S. But it also shows that uh, you know governments have to go to very extreme measures to violate workers' rights in Canada right. in a way that in the U.S. it's just another day at the office, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it's just much more routine um, and and just part of everyday life in a way that 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 is less so in Canada. That's that's fascinating. Um, I wanna I wanted to come back to your piece. You you start okay. your piece by saying that um, our our mentors are dying. And um, and I think about the the giants on the left, and you know, I think Mike Davis and Angela Davis and Noam Chomsky, um, and of course, and of course, there's many who have passed away in the last decade or so. But it does feel like all these people that I I read in college and and couldn't get enough of they they're getting older or they've passed away, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you have any idea. I mean, maybe the answer is just obvious, like they had longer lives and so they've written more and they can be more impactful. But I wonder where the younger generation is and and maybe mm-hmm. why you don't see the same kind of the same kind of work emerging, or maybe you do, and I just don't yeah. know about it, but emerging from. From the younger generations, why is it all people in their yeah. in their seventies and eighties? Yeah, no, that's that's uh, an imp- that sort of uh, uh, sort of. I think Mike Davis's death really triggered for me. This sort of you know, triggered my so- sociology brain a bit, and um, and I started thinking about you know what what you know what makes this hit as hard as it does. You know, even for someone that you know I personally didn't know, right? But I've had other mentors. Uh, who I did know um, mm. die uh, die in, in in recent years, and w- which was also painful. But there's there the, it, it's as I say in the piece, you know, it's not just the forward march of time, right? It's not just that you know there are these people who are you know important intellectuals and political figures, and they get old and they die. That is, of course, what part of what's happening. But there's an important sort of historical sociological dynamic behind that, which is that. That's a generation that 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 came of age during the movements of the 1960s and 70s, which until today, until the past you know seven years or so, was the last time there was a real mass movement left in the United States. Um, and so that brought that a um, there there was a that brought in a larger cohort of people. So there were just more of them. And B, they had real mass movements to relate to. You think about the civil rights movement, you think about the anti-war movement, you know, you think about the, um, um, you know, the the wildcat strikes of the late sixties and and early seventies, you know, the, 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 the move to organize the, uh, or, to organize the public sector, um, the, the the women's movement, the LGBTQ movement, um, these are all things that were really blowing up in the 1960s and 70s, and that fundamentally shaped that generation. Um, 
and because they, they and 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 form them as intellectuals and leaders as well, right? So it's not just that they have these war stories to tell, right? But that the 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 period sort of shapes the people, right? So it's not that these that the, this generation sort of just had these happened to have this inordinate amount of brilliant insights that they then committed to paper. It's that they had more opportunities to be part of movements that then shaped their thinking. Mm -hmm. And the generations that came after that, which is sort of, you know, among them, my generation, you know, so it's like the Gen X generation um, that came of age largely in an environment of de movement decline and defeat, just either had, you know, the, first of all, there were just, there are many fewer people on the left who were available to become the potential replacements for these people. And those people who were available had fewer movements to relate to, to that could potentially create opportunities for them to develop the kind of leadership and intellectual skills that would allow them to become the potential replacements mm -hmm. for that new left generation. And so what happened was as a result, both by being sort of like outnumbered by, you know, like the, the, the numbers of the people who came after them were so small um, and their leadership development skills lesser such that um, what the, the end result was that for much of the past 50 years, um, really up until the fairly recent past, it's been, that new left generation that has been responsible for keeping the U.S. left uh, alive in a meaningful sense, um, and so what you're seeing, and so so so, and then when they and so when they pass from the stage, um, it's a much greater loss than simply just these people getting old and dying because they have assumed so much of the responsibility for keeping the left alive for so many decades at this point. And so we're seeing, uh, fortunately, uh, 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 a new version of that dynamic in recent years where there is uh, a new sort of mass movement left uh, that has emerged in the United States. And in that context, you know, with, with the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, with sort of the teacher strikes of 2018 and, 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 um, just a broader renaissance of us, our broader left ecosystem. And so you see a new generation of young people that are sort of cutting their teeth on these new movements and developing the kind of leadership and the kind of intellectual skills that can finally, so you can actually finally have something of a passing of the torch, um, you know, uh, you know a, bit, a bit late, but I guess better late than never. Thank you